You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now, on to our guest. Poet, public speaker, teacher, and theologian Padraig Otuma explores themes of language, power, conflict, and religion through his work. His latest books are In the Shelter and Borders and Belonging. Padraig's published work is vast and celebrated and incorporates poetry, prose, and theology. From 2014 to 2019, he was the leader of Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation community, the Corimila community. Padraig also works with groups to explore story, conflict, their relationship with religion and argument and violence. He is currently engaged in a PhD in theology through creative practice at the University of Glasgow, exploring poetry, Irishness, and religion. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Padraig and I talk about the trouble with terms like Christian, minister, and light. We discuss the nature of poetry and the role of imagination in the spiritual life and conflict resolution. We also touch on loving our enemies, practicing nonviolence, the complications of doing good and being good, and how peacemaking and community building get messy. Enjoy! Hello, Padre Gotuma. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. It's nice to be with you, Julia. I'm honored to have you on the show. And I'd like to just jump right into your journey, which is a beautiful one. I've been reading into the shelter and uh, sort of mesmerized with the way you lay the landscape of your life. And it seems to me that you are a true minister of the word. You're a poet and a theologian. You're also a speaker. Some might say a preacher. And <laughs> I'm wondering, how did how did you come into this ministry? Well, thanks very much for having me on. I I suppose I've always been interested in words. And for me, words always called me deeper and deeper. Um, and so I have often felt like I'm attracted to a word and then I approach it and use it. And then I begin to see some of the complexities of that word. And then it's not like I move beyond it. I'm not bigger than any word. But I suppose my relationship with that word can become complex. I would say that that's the say that's the case with words like ministry, with words like God, with words like prayer. In no way do I feel like I can judge those words, but I have a a a relationship with those words that makes me want to see their shadowy sides as well as their sheltering sides. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Let's unpack. Uh, what what what's the shadowy side of ministry? <laughs> um. Well, I suppose I, I 
I think of ministry as to minister, which has a particular direction of service, service given to. And partly that's one of the problems I see with the word Christian as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the sense of that the word Christ comes from the word for Messiah in Greek. Um, and that is problematic because I think as you look at 2000 years of Christian witness in the world, there is a way within which people who have followed or who say they follow a Messiah are actually acting like they think they're the Messiah. When you look <laughs> at European expansionism through the last thousand years of the European witness to the gospel, for instance. So time after time after time, people seem not interested in the words of Jesus of Nazareth about love your enemies or love your friends even mm. and much more interested in the words of jesus of nazareth where they echo for themselves i am the way the truth and the life i am meaning european meaning male meaning a certain understanding of power using meaning an imposition of colonization and governance etc mm. so i suppose one of the things that interests me in the word ministry is how can that be seen as reciprocal and I'm not saying anything new. I've I've learned this because brilliant people taught me and witnessed to this, um, that to be host and guest is a fluid relationship. And I've often thought that ministry comes with the expectation of being the host to the banquet of God. Whereas what I think the best people who are doing what might be called ministry do is to locate themselves perhaps as the guest there and the person who has been the most disenfranchised is actually the host. Mm, yeah. And how did you learn all these lessons? Were these questions that you started to think about from a young age or was it a formal education or life experience? I don't know. I suppose I, I feel lucky to have read people whose work really influenced me. Um, mm. I, I think the theologian James Allison certainly gave me uh, a posture and a poise to ask some questions. I think of scholars like Will Gaffney, the way that she translates Hebrew Bible into English and paying attention to the question of gender and race within the understanding of authorship and then translation also. They're, they're specific, extraordinarily intelligent, scholarly people whose work is continually making ways within which me in my small way can pick a small nugget of wisdom from them. I suppose I, f I feel like um, the Columban Fathers, do you know, when I, when I was growing up, the Columban Fathers, an, an order of priests, many of whom were Irish, but who were really an order of priests and brothers and sisters who were interested in in i suppose what we'd call liberation theory so we always had the columban magazine um at home and in school and there was a way there that wasn't talking about mission as conversion um in terms of convert the natives that kind of old way that would, would have been spoken about it was speaking about mission as witness to justice witness to need witness to exploitation that's going um, under the radar, etc. And that kind of witness, and I'm sure the Columban fathers and brothers and sisters would be the first to say that they had lots of things that they got wrong, but they were doing magnificent things in terms of thinking about the power um, that they were interested in. Mm. So I suppose it's, it's from people like that who I, I have learned, and I feel like I'm a small, a very small echo of the, the bravery and wisdom of them.
and mm -hmm. within that, all of that is poetry um poetry as an art of language that that tries to hold a verse or a, a stanza or a title or a line or a line break up to the light in order to see the many ways in which light can be refracted through that poem yeah yeah and do you mean light with a capital l there as in a name <laughs> for god <laughs> no i don't i suppose i mean because and even when i said light i suppose i also mean the dark because i see mm. i see that god is both light and dark you know to take the poem of creation the dark and the light were created and i i think that the imagination that the good only comes with the light um is a limited imagination I wrote a poem or a, a liturgy, really, I suppose, called The Seven Nights of Creation, which is about in the first night of creation, there was the soft darkness created and all of this because I was so concerned with the ways within which uncritically the word light was used to symbolize the good and light. <laughs> for English speakers rhymes with white, you know, it's so easy mm. to imagine that light and white and brightness is where the good happens and dark and black and shadowy is where the bad happens. And I think, I mean, I think 200 years ago, that was simplistic and insulting. Never mind today. I don't think it's a new discovery to say that that's problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love all the the ways that you're such a critical thinker when it comes to words and language. And it reminds me of how complicated it has been in my own life to announce that I'm a Christian or a sister or to embrace these identities or, you know, one of my ministries is spiritual director and I'm not really directing anything. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'm just yeah. a companion, really. Or, um, and I, I'll even say that I'm a minister, but really I'm, I accompany people and I try to yeah. listen and love and serve in the, I think more like a waitress, <laughs> you know, than, than any other type of service. And, the waitress um, of God. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But, that could be but, on your calling card. I yeah, mean, maybe I, one of the things you're saying that, that strikes me is that they're, like I give attention to language and I'm glad to do that. But mm -hmm. the, the critical attention to language is not the only thing mm -hmm. because somebody might uh, not be au fait with a particular kind of language but actually their actions are are doing the work of justice and mm. i think that is a really important thing to recognize that that in a certain sense sometimes language can be the easy hurdle the actions that correspond to to wisdom can be much more difficult to enact Mm. And so I, I suppose it's not like I think I want to therefore put language aside because it's more important to act well um, because language and action have a profound connection. Uh, but I, I don't think that to explore language is the end of the acting of, for justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The adage that's oftentimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, oh, yeah. um, like when preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words which he did not actually say. However, but it's on a poster. On <laughs> oh a poster. yeah, it's on a poster. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, that it is sort of that invitation that like, what are we committing our lives to? What are, what, who are we as people? How do we authentically show up and embody that in a way that is proclaiming the goodness, right? Is proclaiming peace. And it's, it's more about the action than, and the words just, 
actually can get in the way and complicate yeah. things and be clumsy. And so, so how do we listen more deeply underneath the words so that that the truth is, is illumined? I mean, that's ultimately one of the great challenges of being human, isn't it? Yeah. I, I'm reminded in your TED talk, you say stories and questions and lives well-lived with imagination can open up the spaciousness about what it means to be human. Brilliant thesis statement, by the way. Okay. So <laughs> if I can just, I'm wondering for you and your work with words and uh, accompanying people, maybe that's a safer way than word than minister. How does imagination influence your work? The older I've gotten, the more I think imagination is more important. So I suppose, first of all, to, to think about the word imagination, often it's used to think about an imaginary friend or using your imagination when you're younger. Like when you look again at the poem of Genesis, in the image of God, God made them, male and female, God made them. And the word their image could be translated equally as imagination. Mm. And I'm interested that the poets who wrote that text, speaking about how they understood the source of the soul. I mean, it's not a scientific document, but it is speaking about something essential to the human person, that they used language and imagination as some of the early functions of God and how extraordinary that that is to elevate language and imagination. And that the way we see something can be the way something turns out. And that can be a curse as well as a goodness. I've worked for a long time in conflict resolution and one of the most complicated, complicated questions when people are in extended, amplified, elevated experiences of systemic conflict. And I suppose I'm specifically speaking about Ireland here when it comes to the relationship with Britishness and Irishness. One of the most difficult things can be to ask the question, what do you imagine the outcome will be? What would good look like? Mm. people don't agree and for understandable reasons some people mm. say if we could get back to the way things were somebody else will say if everything can be uncovered somebody will say if we are compensated thoroughly somebody else will say well if we can compromise on these aspects and so the imagination of what comes after the showdown can be just as conflict ridden as the conflict that you're seeking to address and so therefore, for me, the question is, is what is the quality of our imagination? Similarly, I've met people involved in conflict resolution who will put off all kinds of things because they think, well, I will be able to spend time with my children, spend more time with my children after I get this resolution done. I will be able to spend a little bit more time reading a poem a day after this resolution. And that too is an interesting function about an imagination about a far off land. And in, in a certain sense, you can see this as creating the perfect obstacle. I create the obstacle that actually prevents me from doing all kinds of things. And in so doing, I, I give my opponent the power to hold me back from all kinds of things that could be life giving. When I've been in situations where people are speaking about postponing the good while they're waiting for the pain to be revealed, I've sometimes said, well, why don't you do just a little bit of it tomorrow or today? Do you know? Oh, read half a poem today. <laughs> it's okay. Or a verse <laughs> or a line, whatever it is that's going to be life-giving. And that too is a function of the imagination. Not because it says, oh, look, if I do this pleasant thing now, it'll make all the badness go away. It won't. 
but somehow doing the pleasant thing now, the thing that is good in and of itself, is a demonstration of the function of the imagination to say, I imagine a life where this will be possible on a deeper level. And actually by imagining it, I'm enacting it in the here and now. Mm. And so for people who have been in sustained conflict, I think the imagination is a powerful function to remember and to recreate what it is we think we're made for and to try in as far as we're able safely or safely enough to try to do even a small gesture of that in the here and now might mean that the imagination has a correspondence with something that you're able to do. Yeah. Wow. Right. I'm reminded of how when I was a youth minister, <laughs> there's that word again. <laughs> and anyway, and, and, and you're doing welcome to use the word. I just don't use <laughs> and doing catechesis and you know, and just you know, a religion teacher in, in a high school and stuff. And, and what I felt like I was struggling against every day was this dynamic of like youth were trying to learn how to be a proper person and be a good adult and like conform to the expectations of society and, 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 and do things right and figure out what right was. And I was trying to break all that down <laughs> and invite them into the vision of God and, and, and invite them to imagine what would this world look like if everyone's dignity was truly honored and if everyone was truly respected and if everyone really knew the peace and justice that comes from Jesus. But they, they were like, what do you, I don't know, is this going to be on the test? Like, <laughs> they just wanted to know what was the proper thing. Yeah. And, and they, they just were so unused to entering into life that way. And I think it's, it's a real challenge. I mean, ultimately, like as a Christian, isn't it very countercultural for uh, for me, I can say that, <laughs> for, for us to be constantly going against the status quo and to kind of crack open the shoulds and the coulds and, and, and into, into this place of like, what is meant to be, what, what are yeah. we meant to co-create with God and each other here? So I've been thinking lately a lot about the word perfect. It has to do a bit with the fact that within religious life as a, as a Franciscan sister, the former way of being a sister was understood to be this pursuit of perfection. Mm. And in the work that I'm trying to do lately of dismantling racism and white supremacy in myself and in the wider world, I've been thinking about how perfection might be connected to white supremacy. I bring that up because in your book, you, you write that the part of the difficulty reckoning with the character of Jesus is that he has the problem of perfection. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, oh yeah, highlighting that. <laughs> true, true, true. And, and so I just have been wondering if we need to create room for expanding the meaning of the word and if perfection could actually like, yes, I, I do believe that God is perfect. And yet maybe I don't actually know what perfect is. And yeah. I've been taught the wrong definition my whole life. I mean, I, I think the word perfect can often come from, you know, watching a gymnastics routine. Uh, they got a perfect 10. Oh, right. Or, or getting 100% on a mathematics text. You know, you got, you got, the perfect score in your mathematics test, etc. 
And I, I think that's uh, that's one understanding of the word perfect. Um, but I don't think it's the one that people involved in public life mean. <laughs> um, I think because you can speak about a perfect apology mm. and that prerequisite, that pre-requires a recognition of injustice or wrongdoing. I wish I could remember it now, but the Hebrew word for perfect is a complex word. It, it speaks more about having an understanding of where you're going rather than demonstrating perfect arrival, <laughs> it, always. And that, I think, is an invitation from so many spiritual systems, which is to have an understanding of the justice you're pursuing and to do everything you can in the here and now to get there. And it's not there to to give you a license to be lazy, to say, oh, I'm not there yet, so don't hold me accountable. It's actually a license to say, do hold me accountable because I'm not there yet. Yeah. I mean, I look at the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. It's narrated in a couple of the different texts, but in one of them, Jesus is tired and goes off to the region of Tyre and the Syrophoenician woman comes and asks for Jesus to come and drive the devil from her daughter. And the disciples are pushing her away. And then Jesus says, um, it's not it's not proper for, you know, the food to be taken from the children and given to the little dogs. And he uses the, the, the diminutive. English doesn't have that diminutive. You can put a little suffix on a word. You can do it in Irish too. Madra is the Irish word for dog. And madrine is the Irish word for little dog. Um, and so Jesus says, it's not fair to take the food from the table and give it to the doggines, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm. There. And she replies, and this is why it's helpful to know the Greek. She replies, oh, but sir, even the doggines eat the crummings. She doubles the diminutive. She, mm. she flings it right back to him. And then he says to her, for saying what you said, you may go. The devil is gone from your daughter. And there is nobody, literally nobody else in the Gospels who was praised for their words, only her. Um, nobody else is praised. And I, I'm Catholic too, and I suppose I, I wish that there was a, a regular remembrance of the time when Jesus learned something, about the time when Jesus was taught a lesson, about the time when his tiredness or his snappiness, or some people have gone so far as to say that it was misogyny or xenophobia that was happening there, whatever was happening, about the time when, for whatever justifiable reason, he was at the end of himself and that came out of him and she was there to show it back to him. And this is such a subtle demonstration. He was quick to recognize his wrongdoing and quick to praise her. And that is so interesting. And I think I have all kinds of problematic relationships with the word Catholic and Christian. But that Jesus, the one who's quick to go, bloody hell, yes, I did mess that up. I'd mm. follow him anywhere. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for, for breaking that story open. I remember when I was teaching scripture, the only explanation I could give to my students, which was inadequate, was, oh, Jesus was just making a joke and we can't get it because we yeah. were in our time and our context and we don't really yeah. know what he was saying there. But no, he was yeah. a student and he was letting a woman set him straight. Yeah, totally. A foreign woman at that too. You know, there's all kinds of all kinds of barriers between her and and her, the capacity for her 
intellectual critique to be taken seriously as intellectual critique. And she did it. And part of me wonders how many times had she faced that, that she was so astute. And do we expect everybody who's marginalized to have to be so brilliant at standing up for themselves? Or do we dismantle the system that requires them to stand up for themselves time and time again? When actually, what if she just wanted to get on with her life and didn't need to perfect those skills? Like I, I'm a gay man and I've worked a lot trying to convince if I could try or trying to invite people who think that gay people have devils or are terrible or immoral or whatever, you know, um, mm. or can be changed or cured. I've worked a lot to 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 plead with people to stop causing so much harm. And regularly younger LGBT people have said to me, can we come along with you when you meet some of these people who say terrible things on the radio? And I've said no, because I want to work for a world where they don't have to learn the skills of having to go, well, here's the Hebrew, here's the Greek, here's what this means, here's what that means. If you want to talk about the biblical mo model of sex or family, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a biblical model of sex or family that you find to be legal today. <laughs> Never, you know, uh, and I don't want to feel like young people need to be initiated into a system where they've got to learn to stand up for themselves like that, because that's indicating I'm happier to work alongside their skills increasing in a world that actually needs to see its its hostility decrease. Mm. And that's the way that I'd like to focus. And I think similarly with the engagement with Jesus and this woman from Syrophoenicia, that I, I, I'm interested in thinking, how is it that he and people like him, by which I mean myself, can speak less of this stuff in order that there is also less of a need for people to have to resort to the those who are quick and brilliant like she was. She was quick and brilliant, but it's unfair to think, well, therefore, because she was quick and brilliant, that justifies the whole encounter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She was tired too, I'm sure. Jesus was tired, but my God, how tired would she have been? Right. How do we have the same humility that Jesus demonstrates? Mm. And <laughs> you've given me a lot to reflect on. I'm also I'm also aware of like your example of, of you talking to people who are proclaiming lies and entering into relationship and as a as an instructor with them about language and biblical texts you're really loving enemy, your enemies. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I am an instructor in that situation. Often I'm an opposer. And I never, you know, I grew up in a certain understanding of what I meant to be a Catholic, which was to be quite submissive. You know, I, I understood that you never speak back to a priest. You know, you never challenge somebody in religious authority. And that extended to the prayer groups that I was in too. I kind of had this imagination of, moral authority and that if somebody's there it's because they deserve to be there of course you know i had to grow up but i i, I was somebody for whom the recognition that conversations of challenge or critique needed to happen that recognition was painful because it felt like to me that i was being unfaithful not only to a religious system but also to a personality i <laughs> I liked being part of things if I could, but I found over and over again that I wasn't welcome. And that was a pain. And so for me, one of the questions is, is how therefore will I hold myself to a standard of language that I will be pleased with? And some of that is 
well, for me, that's that's creative and imaginative. I am utterly uninterested in being a doormat upon which people wipe their feet. But I'm also uninterested in being manipulated into anger. Um, hmm. One time at an event, an LGBT public conversation about you know LGBT people in the life of Belfast, the person who was saying that LGBT people were a danger to the world and to themselves and to everybody and an aberration, etc., made a really disparaging comment about my relationship with Paul. And I, I caught a glance of him and I saw that he was particularly pleased when he made this disparaging comment about my relationship and about Paul. And I think he was hoping that I'd swear at him. And I love swearing. I'm being very careful in the conversation with you. <laughs> you are? <laughs> That's funny. Um, but I think the hope was is that I swear at him. And I was at a Pride event in Belfast. I think I probably would have gotten a standing ovation from the 95% of people in the room who would have been in agreement with me about rejecting what this fella had said. Mm -hmm. But that was that was a trap. And mm. I was uninterested in falling into his trap because then I'd be the aggressive homosexual who responded to his, what he would probably say, his point with taking it personally, as if the whole damn thing wasn't meant to be personal in the first place. So instead, I said, I cook a damn fine curry and I'd like to invite you to my house to see if you'll talk to me like that around my table, the same way, same way you do when you think you have an audience in front of you. And he was petrified and I was delighted. And that is a certain form of love but for me that was love attached to justice it took yeah. a lot from me but it took a damn lot more from him and when he came he was petrified he and did come he said, oh he did for curry he, a cheap he did he bought a cheap <laughs> bottle of wine i brought a friend um because i needed support mm -hmm. paul would be in the house when this guy was there and the fella said is paul going to be here and i said no no paul's glad that i'll meet you with you but he doesn't feel in any he doesn't feel any compunction to share our own home with you mm -hmm. um, for this evening. And he's glad we're meeting, but he's gone somewhere where he doesn't have to feel like he'd have to overhear stuff that's intolerable. And that felt a lot more like justice and felt a lot more like truth. And for me, it's that possibility of language that interests me rather than something that might seem like, oh, turn the other cheek or and mind you, turn the other cheek is also a confrontational response, but yes. a, a limited understanding of turn the other cheek or be kind to those who are nasty to you. I think being kind to those who are horrible to you is a way to say actually justice will be revealed in you feeling a certain level of shame for how much you're diminishing your own dignity and diminishing the well-being of somebody else. So for me, it's actually muscular and powerful to not take shit. <laughs> There's the swear word. Thank you. <laughs> That's mild, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. And, and that is true nonviolence, isn't it? It's nonviolence is, isn't about being submissive or passive or, or sweet or, or, um, you know, killing them with kindness necessarily, but it, but it is, it's about being clever and in a way that sort of takes them off guard and changes, changes their whole perspective, like perception of what the reality is and yeah. teaches them a lesson, which is what you did by inviting this cruel person into your home and giving them yeah. a meal. I mean, how sacramental, how Eucharistic. <laughs> Way to go, yeah. Catholic man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wonder regularly 
you know, Jesus's stuff about turn the other cheek or give them your give them your um, tunic as well as your cloak or yeah. walk the extra mile. I wonder, was this Syrophoenician woman the origin story for all of that? Because he insulted her and she doubled the insult. She's saying, you know, call me a dog. Grand, I'll call myself a dog, too. I eat off the floor, you know, and she by doing that, she's actually exposing to him. She's uh, participating in a certain form of hyperbolic theatricality to think about it. Um, and by doing so, he had to go, my God, look at what I just said. And as a result, I think, I mean, obviously the Gospels put different things in different sequences. So this is by no means a, a, a biblical assertion. But for me, I have a curiosity about the origin story of Jesus's interest in exaggerating something for the purposes of revealing a person's cruelty to them. So when you say, if they ask, when he said, if somebody asks for your cloak, give them your tunic as well. The people wouldn't have been wearing much more than a cloak or a tunic, maybe some kind of undergarment. He's basically saying if somebody's coming and asking you to just give them something that will keep them warm and you've got a tunic on, go naked and expose them for the way that they're forcing you into nakedness. Or if somebody says, carry this for 200 meters, I'll carry it for 400 meters where they can see the pain that they've inflicted on you and be shamed for it. And that I think might have been something certainly in my imagination i like to think that she was behind all of that for him and yeah. she was behind it because he had to learn it first and as a result he thought well this is a way to live yeah yeah who knows who really taught him no. we don't that's part of the no, mystery of yeah, yeah yeah so I, I'd like to hear a little bit about Cormila community. And I know you served as the director there for five years. And um, if you would just tell us about what it is and what you learned during that time. Yeah, so Cormila is a 55-year-old witness to peace and reconciliation that was started by a Presbyterian minister who was a, um, he was a chaplain at the university in Belfast, at Queen's University. And he was interested in how people could come together to speak about their differences, not to find common ground and to realize, oh, we all think the same, but to argue in a way that wasn't going to lead to a recourse to threat. It was founded in 1965, and that was, you know, in the tense years leading up to what we'd call the latest outbreak of the Troubles. Um, Ireland had been partitioned in 1921 by the British. It's, this is the 100th anniversary this year, in fact, last week of the um, partition of Ireland and partition is a terrible thing and it starts things that even reunification won't answer. And uh, religion, of course, has been so complicit in the question of Britishness and Irishness, Irishness being associated with Catholicism and Britishness being associated with Protestantism. And those are not theological distinctions. Those are distinctions as to whether you think that Britain owns the north of Ireland or whether Britain was an inappropriate presence all across Ireland through the colonial project and everything that comes down from that in the fight about territory. So it, it kind of marks a, a clan belonging. So what he was aware of is, is that any political solution to any of this will only be built on the capacity of people to be able to engage with each other. You know, people who refuse to talk to each other are unlikely to be able to talk to each other about the um, reduction of harm. Um, and if you think my imagination is only that all Brits go back to 
to Britain or my imagination is only that everybody in Northern Ireland has a British passport. Those are the ideal obstacles that I was talking about earlier on. You're actually saying I'm perfectly willing for loads of people to die in order for my imagination about what this region will manifest to continue because you create this perf perfected ideal imagination which is also an obstacle because that will never happen it's ridiculous so he founded this displaced christian community that has a center up on the very north coast and so people would come and volunteer there and I suppose about 10,000 people a year come through on programs retreat weekends of looking at questions to do with political belonging and religious belonging we're not a very holy community we do have a, a chapel on site it's called the Cree it's sunken into the ground Cree is the Irish word for heart and it's a it's a it's a building and with very very few right angles and lots of beautiful echoes it's tiny and gorgeous and so primarily i suppose corimila is influenced by the narrative of religion but also given a place that has so much religious sectarianism cautious about too much zeal for religion mm. because too too much zeal has caused so much bloodshed here corimila has about 30 staff and then there's about 200 people who are members of the community but people it's kind of like a third order for catholics to understand it like that you know the way third order franciscans they're in their own life they've got kids they're looking for jobs they're whatever you know they're working they're retired but they have made a commitment to a certain way of life that incorporates prayer and service and community with other people who are part of the third order that's i suppose a way to understand lots of these european ecumenical displaced communities there was after world war ii there was a whole a whole slew of these communities were established all across europe as as countries tried to face the ways within which their christianities were complicit with violence mm. so these communities are not seeking to diagnose the troubles that are around them but really to confess their own participation in that and do that with time and money and dedication and learning and mistakes mm, yeah and what did your time directing that space it sounds like you're are you still part of the community in a way oh yeah yeah totally. yeah, yeah no. okay okay so but but when you were the leader of it yeah what did you learn about the messiness of peacemaking mm. Uh, an enormous amount. It's easy to think that, you know, doing good is always good and always easy, but it's not. I think doing good is very difficult because you might think you're doing good and realize afterwards, actually, that was naive or that was mistaken or I was, I was, I was highlighting the wrong thing that wasn't the real problem or I was caught up in competition with another organization or, you know, um, or there was tension within our own community and actually that tension distracted us from being able to tell the truth because I was worried about not being exposed myself or not saying something critical to somebody who I love. Um, I suppose I learned in terms of the messiness of peace, how, how much resistance is there. You know, in lots of languages we have phrases for better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And I think so many of us are willing to put up with a broken system because the possibility of an improved system is new and the new invites us into trying to believe in the potential for collaboration. And that can be very frightening. And I think often people would rather put up with the thing that they don't like. I see so often organizations that have been doing the hard work, the difficult work of community building or peace or 
urban regeneration and then they begin to get some accolades they begin to get some praise and it's around then that everything falls apart mm. and i don't think it's because they're hypocrites at all i think it's because it can be difficult to know how can we sustain this and it can be difficult to pay attention to the ego and it can be difficult to understand what it means to do the good and so sometimes hostility is easier to face when it is being a little bit more bald about itself when somebody comes in and says i hate all of you and i want to destroy you <laughs> that's actually quite easy to go oh check it out we've got a demonstration of hostility whereas in a committee of good dedicated people who are all interested in peace and have all given lots it can be really hard to know what, where is the function of resistance or hostility happening here what's the wisdom behind it and what's behind that and what's behind that and how can we learn and then collaborate it can be painful because people give so much of their heart to these works in a parish in a community organization and the more of your heart you give few people are paid well if they're paid at all in these kinds of endeavors so therefore you're giving from the depth of your own time and dedication and skill and resources and therefore the potential for hurt is even higher mm, yeah so the more we love and more we enter into authentic relationship the more we're setting ourselves up for pain yeah for i mean we're we're actually approaching the cross yeah totally. yeah and i mean I, I i did live in christian communities for a very long time 15 years ecumenical christian communities this wasn't Mila. this these were other things when i was a younger man and one of the things that struck me in ecumenical christian communities particularly those in ireland it was hard to have a community prayer life because people came from different traditions and some some people were liturgical and some were evangelical and some were more free and some were more pentecostal and some were more charismatic etc and so partly in an attempt to not be offensive there was a kind of a lowest common denominator of prayer that was landed at in these Christian ecumenical experiences, most of which were just charismatic praise and worship songs, which are fine if they're working. But what struck me when I used to go and go on retreats, I'd go on retreats regularly and often stay with a religious community. Um, what struck me was that actually a liturgy of the hours allowed all kinds of ways for hostility to be located. And I think that was a secular function of a prayer life, which is to have a way within which people were prioritizing, putting their work down at 12 o'clock for the Angelus or putting their work down midway through the afternoon or turning up to just before dinner prayers or whatever. That were all very simple. They didn't have to be reinvented every time because community living is very intense. And so the idea that you turn up to the chapel and you never know what on earth is going to happen, I think is quite exhausting. And so... I saw ways within which communities of religious communities of extraordinary diversity held themselves together by a very simple, predictable prayer. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing to notice. And I think that contemporary communities of goodwill within and without religion, I think, can learn something very powerful about how group dynamics can work, about having some simple rituals that actually are not trying to continually change, but are saying these are old wisdoms and they can hold us together. Yeah, yeah, the importance of rhythm, right? Rituals. Amen. It feeds us. It nourishes our hearts. It's essential to have 
spiritual practices that that like sus- that keep us going, right? That offer us bread in in the hard work of approaching the cross daily in our loving and our living. I just have one last question. We've already sort of explored messiness, and I know we could we talked about the messiness of language, but and we could go explore that further. And and I'd like to do that by asking you about discipleship. Messy Jesus business is we say it's about radical discipleship. What is discipleship for you? And what does that mean? Or And do you consider yourself a disciple? It's not a word I think about it at all, really. Um, I suppose I've heard it being used in a way that has a certain cookie-cutter imagination mm. um, and a way where people are eager to become like Jesus. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about the literature of the Bible is that there's so many people there who probably were nothing like Jesus, but they're still there. And that there is an entire village of people where you to get all your all the characters of the Bible, even just to say your favorite characters of the Bible, they probably still wouldn't agree with each other. And so if discipleship is to mean something fruitful, I think it has to mean something about how messy that's going to be. People disagreeing with each other. And that's a demonstration of the perfection of what it means to be in community. Um, yeah. I, I suppose I, I am interested in thinking, um, what does it mean to take Jesus Nazareth seriously? And I, I don't know if there's a word for that. And I take him seriously by thinking, I wonder, did he want children or did he have children? Partly, I think he did. Mm. And, you know, when he brought the disciples to his home in Capernaum in the ninth chapter of Mark, and, you know, they've been arguing about who the greatest is and he sits them down or he sits down. And then it says he took a child and placed in the midst of them. From whence did this child come? <laughs> the shelf of children used for <laughs> parabolic purposes. Um, I, I think it's, I think the most obvious solution, which isn't the final one, but it is an obvious one, is to say it was his own child. And so for me, that's involved in taking Jesus seriously to go, yeah, probably. And if he didn't have children, he probably wanted them. Lots of people do. And to think, what would that have been like? And so for me, discipleship is not a word I think of because I, I hear it so often used in a way of follow and don't ask questions. Oh. And for me, that has been so connected with abuse mm. in my own life, as well as in the lives of others around me. What, what interests me, if I am to think about the Gospels and Jesus of Nazareth, is to take himself and myself seriously enough to do the work and to ask good questions. Mm. to be totally yourself in the way mm. you show up and yeah. love and live your life. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. Patrick, this has been so much fun, and <laughs> I wish we it's could talk all day. <laughs> yeah. no, I, saw, I mean, I remember um, our conversations when we were in New Mexico together a few years ago, and um, it's been so lovely to know you since then. I so enjoyed our breakfast conversations. Yeah, thanks. I hope we can do that again. <laughs> Someday you'll have to come to Chicago and I'll attempt to make you a curry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'd love that. I like Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And uh where where can our listeners follow your work and and learn all your wisdom? <laughs> well, they can follow my work. I'm not sure about the wisdom. Um, <laughs> maybe by subscribing to the Poetry Unbound podcast. I present a podcast from the On Being Studios um, called Poetry Unbound, which is in its third season. It's just, it's like a lexio with a poem. I take a poem, I read it, reflect on it, read it. It's only 15 minutes long. I love it, uh, by the way. 
Thank yeah. you for it. Oh, thanks. And then Krista Tippett, who founded that project, has an extraordinary podcast called On Being. Um, that, those are ways you can follow along. I've got some books out. There's a US edition of In the Shelter, which is, I suppose, a, a memoir of of literature and questions and stories. Um, that's there. There's a book called Borders and Belonging, which is a reflection on reading the um, Book of Ruth through the lens of contemporary politics. And then I have a few books of poetry as well. Readings from the Book of Exile and Sorry for Your Troubles. Thank you so much. Thank you. you to join us in this contemplative moment. A reading from Padraig Otuma. Here's a prayer from the Borders and Belonging book. Strange God, you speak from clouds and burning bushes, from donkeys, death and devastating news. You speak through stories of the past made relevant today. You speak through mistakes we make and through the things we do to keep ourselves alive. If the far end of the horizon is no limit to you, then surely neither are we. Ourselves, our lovers, our enemies, those we troll, those we denigrate, those we extol and lift to fame. Whoever you are, speak to us wherever we find ourselves and again and again. Plead with us. Open us up with little stories, small surprises that soften our guarded borders because you are the strange voice that speaks from strange places, calling us strangers all towards each other and towards a justice that looks like love. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, Thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. <laughs>